Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation chapter 8. I'm going to do the entire chapter in this audio, verses 1 through 13. Our context is this. In our last chapter, Revelation 7, we read about the 144 Christians who are sealed, the 144,000 Christians who are sealed and protected from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb is described in chapter 6, where we see the fifth and sixth seal and the first four seals, the four horsemen, all of which is showing judgment coming on the apostate Israel. We go now to Revelation 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, and remember the seal is the seal on the scroll, and the scroll is the testament of Jesus, which is the new covenant, which he inherits as he also bequeaths that inheritance to the church. This is what the seal is. The seal, of course, was a mark of ownership, who uh, it was the mark of a witness who was the witness of the seal and of course only the slain lamb had the authority to break open the seal to to eventuate that that inheritance that that kingdom which was coming upon his church and of course before his kingdom could come there had to be judgment on the old Israel which was hindering with its persecution and its murder hindering the establishment of the new kingdom. So the Lamb broke the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now you recall the structure of Revelation. You've got uh, seven seals. The seventh seal then contains seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains seven bowls, seven, seven, seven. So the idea here is if Israel breaks God's commandments, Israel is subject to sevenfold judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven chalices. Now, let's look at Leviticus 26, verses 18, 21, 24, and 28, and we'll get an idea of how seven is a symbol of divine, perfect, divinely perfect judgment. Seven, of course, is the number of divine perfection, but let's see how it's, seven is hooked up with judgment in Leviticus 26. And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. There's seven times of punishment. And if you walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Then will I also walk contrary unto you and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury, and even and I even I will chastise you seven times for your sins. So there's seven linked closely with punishment. And so we see now that's why the book of Revelation has seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, because there's going to be ultimate, complete judgment on Israel. Israel, along with their Roman allies, committed the worst crime in the history of the human race. They killed the Son of God. Nothing worse than that. And so, hey, the ju- if there's justice in the universe, and there is, then God is going to execute perfect justice because of the hideous crime that apostate Israel did and, and the Roman Empire, what they did by killing Jesus. Now, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour when the Lamb broke the seventh seal. So before judgments continue, there's silence for half an hour. Now, this comes from Old Testament ritual, Old Testament temple parish practice. Here's a quote from Alfred Edesheim, fantastic 19th century Jewish Christian author whose books are absolutely fantastic if you want to understand Judaism and how it relates to Christianity. He wrote in his book, The Temple, on page 167, the following, quote, as the president gave the word of command, which marked that the time of incense had come, the whole multitude of the people without 
withdrew from the inner court and fell down before the Lord, spreading their hands in silent prayer. It is this most solemn period when throughout the vast temple buildings deep silence rested on the worshiping multitude. While within the sanctuary itself the priests laid the incense on the golden altar, and the cloud of odors rose up before the Lord, which serves as the image of heavenly things in this description. So this is describing the time of incense when the priests put incense on the golden altar in the, at the doorway of the Holy of Holies in the holy place, and that incense went up as a symbol of, of the of God's people's prayers. But before that, while that was going on, the people spread their hands in silent prayer. They fell down before the Lord and spread their hands out and, and remained totally quiet. And while the priests did their work in the temple, it was quiet on the outside. And that's exactly what John's referring to here. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. Half an hour is about the time in the temple service it would take to perform the aforementioned time of incense. We go to verse 2 in Revelation 8. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. I am going to assume that the seven angels mentioned here in verse 2 are the same angels which were mentioned in Revelation 1.20. And I'll read that now. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. That's in Jesus' right hand. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is standing in the middle of seven lampstands, and his right hand are seven stars, and those seven stars are explained to be the angels, which I take to be the messengers of the seven churches, so they're going to be messengers going to the seven churches. They could be angelic messengers in the vision. And if these seven angels are doing double duty, that's the seven angels here who are standing before God. Seven trumpets are given to them. And notice that each angel gets one, representing one church, gets to participate in one judgment. One angel for all, for each angel has a trumpet and there are seven trumpets blown and each angel represents a, tr a church. So if you look at it that way, each church gets to participate a little bit in this judgment upon the people who are persecuting them. Now these angels in the vision could have been assigned to bring messages to the church. Of course, in real life, it would be a human messenger carrying the messages to the church. In the vision, it could be a literal angel that is the messenger carrying messages to the church. At any rate, these seven trumpets are said to be referring to the seven trumpets that blew when Jericho fell. Several, a lot of commentators say this. Let's read Joshua 6, 4 through 5. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. So you see each angel has a trumpet. So now we're talking about seven trumpets. And seven trump, trumpets were carried around the walls of Jericho as the priests carried them around the walls of Jericho. They blew and the walls fell down. To make a long story short, but on the seventh day, march around the city seven times when the priest blows the trumpet. Notice seven days, seven times, how everything is related to seven because seven is the divine number for judgment. Well, in general, it's the divine number, and here it's blowing a horn, which is associated with the judgment on Jericho. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear it sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout, then the city wall will collapse, and the troops will advance, each man straight ahead. So now Jerusalem is now a pagan city like Jericho. Seven trumpets are being blown before its walls, and it's going to go down. There's your imagery, folks. It's all about the destruction of Israel, apostate Israel. We go now to Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, when we were on verse 1, I 
mentioned that half hour in heaven when there was silence, corresponded to the Old Testament practice of the of the Jewish worshipers putting their faces on the ground, spreading their hands out, and being quiet while the priest went inside the holy place to put incense on the altar, the golden altar of incense. And so we see this replicated here in Revelation 8. Now this angel came, stood at the altar. This is the golden altar of incense. Bruce Gore says that this must be Christ because only a priest, not an angel, can offer incense. I don't know how strong that argument is. Maybe that's Christ or maybe it's just another angel. I don't know if Gore's right about that. But at any rate, the incense was given to the angel. Now this incense symbolizes the prayers of the saints Revelation 5, 8, we read this, when he took the scroll, that's Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense. 24 elders, they were clothed in white, they had a crown, they had a harp, praising God, and they had golden bowls filled with incense. And then John conveniently for us in Revelation 5, 8 describes what the incense is. Incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So that's an easy symbol because the book of Revelation explains it for us. So the prayers of the saints, in fact, in verse 4 in Revelation 8, we read this, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So that's an easy symbol there that we know. Now notice how the prayers of the saints are particular prayers. They're prayers associated with judgment. Prayers go up in verse 4. Judgment comes down in verse 5, which we're about getting ready to get to. And when I read verse 5, we're going to see that there are imprecatory prayers in the New Testament times, in New Covenant times. We often think about David's imprecatory prayers in the Old Covenant. And how many times have you heard people say, well, that was for the Old Covenant, but now we're in the New. Hey, folks, in the New Covenant times, there were imprecatory prayers. It is not wrong for Christians to pray for judgment on God's enemies. We should either pray for their conversion or their destruction, which is interesting because I read my notes here, because that's exactly what I've done in the last month, praying for conversion for people out of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, these leftist Christ-hating anarchists who are killing people all over the place, filled with hate, filled with deceit. And I say, God, either convert them or destroy them. No, no problem with that. I got no problem. I mentioned it on a Zoom call with some old Christian friends of mine from 40 years ago, and I could look at their faces. They looked at me like, what's the matter with this guy? How can you pray that way? Well, hey, look at the prayers of the saints in Revelation 8, 4. Prayers of the saints are going up. Now let's look at Revelation 8, 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar. That's the bronze altar. And threw it to the earth. Or, fill it, or threw it to the land. I'm going to translate earth as land there. Threw it on the land of Israel. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. I said that was the altar, a bronze altar. Actually, it doesn't say. It could be the bronze altar. It could be the gold altar, golden altar. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is it the fire that came off of that altar represented judgment. Why do we know that? Because there's peals of thunder, sounds of flashes, lightning, earthquake. That's obviously judgment. Now, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, and in the temple, God first lit the fire on the altar. Leviticus 9.24, fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down. Second Chronicles 7.1, when Solomon finished praying, fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests would keep that fire burning as a holy fire and they carried it from place to place so they could start other holy fires. So this is God's holy fire here, the land of Israel is being burnt up. In the Old Testament, the only acceptable way to burn a pagan city was with holy fire from the altar. 
Now, I'm going to read you a verse to try to prove that, Deuteronomy 13:16. Then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square. That's a city that had been conquered. And you're to burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Well, all burnt offerings were done with holy fire. You couldn't just light a burnt offering with any fire. It had to be fire that came from the altar. And that fire had to be kindled by God originally. I think the kindling was done by lightning or some sort of process like that. Now, we'll point out that Deuteronomy 13, 16, not all the translations have with fire as a whole burnt offering. They just say with fire. King James doesn't have as a whole burnt offering. Home and Christian Study Bible doesn't have as a whole burnt offering. The NIV and the New American Standard do, so I, I imagine that's a manuscript issue. But at any rate, I'm sure that that's, it was meant to be that that Moses in Deuteronomy, or God in Deuteronomy 13, is talking about burning a city as a burnt offering. It was a sacrifice to the Lord, and it meant to be done to be done in a priestly way with holy fire. Now, I said that the lightning and the earthquake and the thunder all showed judgment. That's easy, but just to prove that to you again, let's look at Exodus 19, 16, and 18. And it came, up, came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain, the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all people that was in the camp trembled. There's the trumpet there, trumpet of judgment. Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. So in this scene before Mount Sinai, there was thunder, there was lightning, and there was an earthquake, and there was fire. Thunder and lightning, earthquake and fire in Revelation 8 with the first trumpet we see fire. We see thunder, we see lightning, and we see earthquake. Same thing. So even as the people saw all of these natural occurrences as a symbol of the curse, curses coming from the law, the judgment that comes from the Old Testament law of Moses at Mount Sinai, likewise... The apostate Jews are going to experience the justice and the judgment of God when God destroys them. First trumpet, Israel's going down with fire from the altar. Let me summarize the things in common with Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, and Revelation 8, first trumpet. You see a trumpet blowing, you see smoke, you see fire, you see thunder, you see lightning, you see an earthquake. So I think the parallel is pretty clear here. This is judgment. Revelation 8, 6, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now we're going to go into what Bruce Gore calls trumpetology. There's a lot of stuff on trumpets in the scriptures, and I'm going to try to do a little sidebar on trumpets because it's interesting in its own right. Now, I'm going to look at five uses for trumpets in the Old Testament so we can see if we can get symbolism out of it. Number one, trumpets were used for ceremonial processions ceremonial processions, especially for escorting the Ark of the Covenant. And the one that is really relevant for us here is when the Ark was marched around Jericho. Here's another example, First Chronicles 15:24, and Shabaniah and Jehoshaphat and Nathanael and Amasai and Zechariah and Benaiah and Eliezer, the priest, did blow with the trumpets before the Ark of God. So you see trumpets, Ark of God, as they move the Ark. Let's go back to Jericho here. John must have had Jericho in mind, actually, when he wrote this. About seven angels with seven trumpets. Revelation 11:9, we see this. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. There's your symbols of judgment. But you see an ark appeared. And then in Revelation 11:13, 13, 
We see this. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell. God took his tithe of Israel. And the earthquake was slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So Jerusalem's about to fall. It's suffering its judgments. And in the midst of this, the ark appears. So trumpet and ark associated with the judgment of Israel. All right, that's the first use of a trumpet to use in ceremonial processions. Second use is the use, a trumpet was used to proclaim the rule of a new king. For example, in 1 Kings 134, there the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan are to anoint him as king over Israel. You are to blow the ram's horn and say, long live King Solomon. You are to blow the ram's horn. There's the trumpet blast. Also in Revelation 11:15, we see that the seventh, seventh trumpet is a signal for the heavenly choir to sing a coronation anthem that God has begun to reign. Revelation 11:15, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, "The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms, kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever." So there's an angel sounding a trumpet. Bomp. God starts to rule. Jesus starts to rule. So that's the second use of a trumpet, to proclaim the rule of a new king. The third use of a trumpet is to sound an alarm, to warn Israel of approaching judgment. I'm going to give you five scriptures that clearly show this. Jeremiah 4, 5 through 6, Declare you in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, Blow ye the trumpet in the land. Gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. So the trumpet blows as an announcement that evil is coming from the north. That's over the Euphrates River, of course, as the Babylonians come in in 586 B.C. And a great destruction, Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 6, 1, O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem and blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a sign of fire in Bethacarim. Bethacarim, I'm sorry, for evil appeareth out of the north and great destruction. Again, that's Babylon's coming over the Euphrates River from the north. He says, blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Great destruction is coming. Their trumpet is associated with destruction. Ezekiel 33, 2-4. Set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people. There's blowing of the trumpet. Then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be on his own hand, head. So there we have trumpet associated with the watchman not doing his job and destruction coming. Joel 2.1, blow you the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord comes for it is nigh at hand. There's a trumpet associated with judgment, the day of the Lord. Judges 7.18, when I and everyone with me blow our trumpets, you are to blow your trumpets all around the camp. Then you will say for the Lord and for Gideon. That's, of course, that's trumpets about announcing judgment on Midian, not on Israel. But the idea is trumpets are blown right when something bad's about to happen to somebody. Sounds an alarm. Fourth use of trumpets is to call Israel to national repentance. Here are the scriptures, Isaiah 58.1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. So a trumpet is blown, and Israel is shown their sins and their transgression. Jeremiah 6.17 and 19. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they say, We will not hearken. Hear, O land, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. So there's the sound of a trumpet in association with repentance. Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. 
Joel 2, 15 and 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? So once again, a trumpet is blown in Zion, and for what? To sanctify a fast called a solemn assembly. Why do we want to have a fast? Why a solemn assembly? So that you can weep for your sins. So the fourth use of the trumpet is to call Israel to national repentance. Now the idea of trumpets being blown for repentance is especially shown at the Feast of Trumpets on Rosh Hashanah. That's Tishri number one. That's the Silver New Year for the Jews first day of the seventh month in the ecclesiastical year, the first day of the first month in the new in the civil year. We see this in Leviticus twenty three twenty four. Tell the Israelites in the seventh month on the first day of the month, that's Tishri one, you are to have a day of complete rest, commemoration, and trumpet blast. You're supposed to blow the trumpet all day long. Numbers twenty nine one, you are to hold a sacred assembly in the seventh month on the first day of the month. Again, that's Tishri one. And you are not to do any daily work. This will be a day of trumpet blast for you. All right, so trumpets are blown on Rosh Hashanah. And again, what was Rosh Hashanah? It's the beginning of the year. I think it was, what, nine days later they had the Day of Atonement. You blow the trumpet in order to prepare the people for penitence and confession of sins. That is the fourth use of a trumpet. The fifth use of a trumpet is to summon the congregation, either to worship or to go out to battle. Here's the scripture in Numbers 10, 1 through 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, and thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly. So you see, silver trumpets call the assembly, and for the journeying of the, of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but with one trumpet, then the priests which are heads of the thousands of Israel shall gather themselves unto thee. When you blow an alarm, then the clamps that lie on the east part shall go forward. When you blow an alarm, the second time in the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but you shall not sound an alarm. Well, anyway, all that is complicated advice and instructions on how to blow the trumpets to assemble the, the congregation to tell who to march, who when to march. And then in verse 9, Numbers 10, And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets. Blow the alarm. It's Time to go battle. So that's the fifth use of trumpets, to summon the congregation. So how do I summarize all that? Seven trumpets. Jesus is standing there with seven trumpets, and they're blowing. This is in the seventh, seventh seal, as we're getting ready to talk about the seven trumpets. Those seven seals, those seven trumpets in the seventh seal, they are announcing this. God is about to do to Jerusalem what he did to Jericho, i.e. destroy it. So we're getting ready for... Trumpet number two, three, four, five, six, and seven, and we're going to see destruction on Jerusalem. We're going to see a new king is about to be proclaimed over the new Israel. A trumpet announces a new king, right? A trumpet announces destruction, judgment coming. It announces a new king. Three, the old Israel is being warned of impending doom. It's coming, folks. You better listen. Number four, the army of God is about to be unloosed upon Israel, calling the camp of God together. Except this time it's not the Israelites, it's the Romans calling them together to come to wreak judgment upon Israel. And, of course, number five, the trumpets signify that judgment is about to fall on Israel. And with that background, we get into the trumpets, starting in verse 7 with the first trumpet. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, 
and they were thrown to the land. And a third of the land was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. I'm translating earth, air, land. Now, starting with the fraction third, you recall the seal judgments. There was a fourth of the seeds of the trees and the grass was burned up. Here it's a third. There's just a simple explanation of this. The trumpet judgments were more severe than the seal judgments. So God's judgments are progressively more severe. The more time that a rebellious person or nation takes to repent, the worse the judgments get. So we go from 25% judgment with the seals to 33% judgment with the trumpets. And when we get to the bowls, it's going to be 100% judgment. Now, three things came from this altar, this fire that came from the altar that the angel was throwing down. And if that angel was Jesus, then Jesus is, is, is throwing uh, judgment on the land of Israel. Hail, fire, and blood. Well, hail, of course, causes destruction when it hits the ground, as anybody's ever been through a hailstorm knows. Fire, of course, it burns up, and that's a good symbol of destruction. But blood is a little strange. Hail and fire mixed with blood thrown to the land. Well, here's David Chilton's explanation of blood. He said that fire from the altar was mixed with the blood of the slain witnesses. If you recall, in the fifth seal, the witnesses, all clothed in white, were saying, How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our murder? Their blood had pooled at the base of the altar there. And so David Chilton says that the hail and fire coming from the altar, and this, of course, is not the golden altar, but it's the bronze altar. The hail and fire coming is mixed with the blood of the slain witnesses in front of the bronze altar of sacrifice, and all that comes on the land. Now, arguing in favor of this interpretation, we can read Matthew 23, verses 34 through 38. Jesus says this to the Pharisees, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the land, that upon you may come righteous blood. And, of course, that blood cries out for vengeance. It's a kind of an interesting metaphor here. The blood is like it's being poured out on the people who said, this is who you killed, and here it comes back. You're responsible for this. And so Chilton says that the blood that's coming down there is the people that the evil apostate Jewish kingdom had killed, all these righteous prophets. It was coming down on their heads. From the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, Jesus continues, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kills the prophets and stones them which are sent unto thee. Dot, 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 dot. Verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And that means their temple is left desolate, destroyed, gone. And you see all that judgment on Israel is associated with righteous blood coming upon the land. That upon you may come upon all, may, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the land. I like that interpretation. I realize it's not a slam dunk, but it does sound like hail and fire and blood are coming down on the people of the land. Now it says... All of the green grass was burnt up. Now, we have to distinguish something here. If it's all the green grass in Israel, that messes up the third, the third, the third. Third of the earth, third of the trees, but 100% of the grass? I don't think so. I think it's a third of the, third of the land was burned, a third of the trees was burned, and all the green grass that was on that third was burned up. 
where the third of the trees was, the grass that was under the trees is burned up. Third of the land was burned up with all the grass that was on that third of the land was burned up. Not 100% of the green grass was burned up. That keeps the third scheme intact. Now, this actually happened during the Jewish war, actually. The judgment on Jerusalem had a horrible effect on the natural environment, namely the trees and the grass. Let's read from Josephus, Jewish War, Book 6, Section 1, Paragraph 50. The countryside, like the city, was a pitiful sight, for where once there had been a multitude of trees and parks, there was now an utter wilderness, stripped bare of timber, and no stranger who had seen the old Judea and the glorious suburbs of her capital, and now beheld utter destruction, could refrain from tears or suppress a groan at so terrible a change. The war had blotted out every trace of beauty, and no one who had known it in the past and came upon it suddenly would have recognized the place. For though he was already there, he would still have been looking for the city. <laughs> in other words, things got burnt up during the Jewish war. Now, one more little question here is it says a third of the land was burnt up. And you might say, well, how could land be burnt up? Well, it's talking about the trees and the grass that was on the land that got burnt. So that's just a short way of saying the land was burnt up because all the vegetation was burned. Now, that's the first trumpet. Let's go to the second trumpet. Revelation 8, verses 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. All right, let's look at this symbol of a mountain. A mountain is an accepted symbol for Israel. We look at Exodus 15:17. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. Talking about the Exodus. In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, O Lord, which thy hands have established. In the mountain of your inheritance. That's Israel. To be more precise, Mount Zion is a universally recognized symbol for Israel. Hebrews 12:22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Psalm 48, 1 through 2. The Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, rising splendidly is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion, the summit of Zaphon, is the city of the great king. So, a mountain, the mountain is the symbol of Israel. What happened to it? It was ablaze with fire. That means judgment is on Israel, because fire burning symbolizes judgment. And it was thrown into the sea. We're going to see in a minute that the sea is the symbol of the Gentiles. It's a typical symbol that comes up a lot in the book of Revelation, and so they're destroyed in the sea of the Gentiles as the Gentile Roman armies come in and wipe them out. Now, we can turn to the run-up to the Olivet Discourse during Passion Week and see how Jesus referred to Israel as a mountain thrown into the sea as he cursed apostate Israel. Now, Jesus in Matthew 20-25 through 25 gave a whole lengthy series of discourses and parables about the destruction of Jerusalem. My favorite one is where he says, And your city will be burned with fire. And in the middle of all of these discourses against apostate Israel, he cursed the unfruitful fig tree. In Matthew 21, verse 19, we see this. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road. This is as Jesus was coming back from the Mount, Olives, Olives, Mount of Olives back into Jerusalem. I think it was on Tuesday of Passion Week. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. Okay, so he's cursing Israel. And then two verses later, in Matthew 21:21, 21, 21, we read this. 
Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. Now has Jesus changed the subject? No. In verse 19, he was talking about cursing the fig tree, talking about apostate Israel. In verse 21, he's still talking about apostate Israel. He's talking about the mountain that's going to be thrown into the sea. And notice, he's asking his disciples to pray for that. If you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, he's asking them, pray for these people, these evil, wicked people, that justice come on their head. In fact, it's interesting, in the very next verse, Matthew 21, 22, we read this, And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Now, that verse is quoted a lot, but totally wrenched from its context. We'll notice, notice that here Jesus is asking his disciples to pray in faith for the destruction of apostate Israel. He is praying an imprecatory prayer and asking his disciples to pray an imprecatory prayer in the New Covenant, this is not in the Old Testament like David was when he says, smash their teeth against the rocks. This is in the New Covenant. He's saying, throw them into the sea, burning up the souls under the altar in Revelation 6.10 in the fifth seal. Said the same thing. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the land? Nothing wrong with praying destruction on God's enemies. I pray for this every day. I pray for against the culture, the Antichrist culture that wants to murder human beings, wants to elevate narcissism and materialism, that wants to define sodomy as marriage, and so forth, I pray that God will destroy them. He's ultimately going to do it. I just pray that he does it quicker than ever before, he dest before a lot of innocent people get hurt. All right, so the mountain is thrown into the sea, and it's burning. Now, the sea, as I said earlier, is a typical symbol for Gentiles. I've gotten this from Bruce Gore, and I think he's right about this. I know that sea stands for the Gentile nations. That's many, many, many commentators say that, and we'll use that metaphor later, that symbol later, as we get into the book of Revelation deeper. The sea is the Gentiles, the land is Israel. For example, the sea beast is the Roman Empire, and the land beast is Israel. When we get back to the two beasts... So Israel is thrown into the sea of the Gentiles, as Bruce Gore says. That happened when they were destroyed by Rome in AD 70. Now, in the last part of verse 9, we see after Israel is thrown into the sea, the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Blood stands for the death, all the death and destruction that happened in the Roman Empire in the run-up to the Jewish War. The year of four emperors, for example, in 69, Tacitus, the Roman historian, thought the Roman Empire was done for. There was so much internecine strife, civil war, emperors killing each other and then committing suicide. And it's great drama, if you like that. And even before that, you got Nero. That was kind of bad, too. Claudius, before that, was assassinated. Gaius, Caligula, he was assassinated, deservedly so. So at any rate, that the Roman Empire is full of blood. The living creatures in the sea died. Again, that just is the same as the blood metaphor. People are dying in the Roman Empire because of all the strife. A third of the ships were destroyed. That refers to their the interruption of their commerce. Now that's the way Bruce Gore takes it. I think he's right. I do have a little caveat there. It could be that it's just a symbol of when Israel goes in the sea... It, Israel is so polluted that it, Israel pollutes the sea with its blood, with the blood of the Israelites, and the sea 
And so the sea runs with the Israelites' blood, and then all the living creatures in the sea died because of the blood of the Israelites, which polluted the sea, and everything that nasty Israel touches pollutes. It pollutes. A third of the ships were destroyed. I don't know how you would interpret that with Israel falling into the sea. And so because of my reticence on that last point, I think I'll go with Gore's interpretation. It's talking about the upheavals in the Roman Empire, and that goes along with our theme about the book of Revelation, that there were two persecuting entities of the church, one was apostate Israel, and one was the Roman Empire. We now go to verses 10 and 11 in Revelation 8. The third angel sounded, that's the third trumpet, sounds, and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Now, we're going to see that this falling star, this star that falls from heaven, refers to Babylon from the Old Testament. And since Jerusalem is the new Babylon, the whore of Babylon, as we'll see when we get back to, I think it's chapter 13, we can prove that. The way you prove it is, uh, there was a great city in which our Lord was crucified. Well, that's obviously Jerusalem. And then another place, Babylon in Revelation, Babylon is called the great city. Well, if the great city in which our Lord is crucified is Babylon, well, then Jerusalem is the new Babylon. The imagery fits perfectly. Well, let's see how this star that falls from heaven, how that refers to Babylon. We go to Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. Well, there's the star and there's the falling from the heavens. Now, I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation there. That has relevance, which I'll show you in a minute, but because King James and some other translations translate star as Lucifer, which completely hides what is going on here. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. Now, this is Isaiah talking to Babylon. Isaiah 14, you destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. That's Babylon. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. And, of course, that happened to Babylon when the Persians took over in 539 B.C. Now, this Lucifer stuff is a lot of stuff that comes from the pseudographic of the fake pseudo-scriptures, I guess I could call them. And, and so people, you know, come up with all this stuff, and pretty soon you got a whole devilish folklore. But it's not talking about the devil here. It's talking about Babylon. So, to summarize, ancient Babylon was called a falling star by Isaiah and John in the book of Revelation. Here in the second trumpet refers to the whore of Babylon. Excuse me, the third trumpet refers to the whore of Babylon as a fallen star. Now, here's a little sidebar. This is my favorite verse to deal with people who insist upon interpreting Revelation in a hyper-literalist fashion. Oh, a great star from fell from heaven and fell on a third of the rivers? If it's a star, how can it fall on the rivers and not completely destroy 100% of the rivers as well as the whole earth? A star would fry the earth in a microsecond, a nanosecond. Well... I looked up the word, well, the first the way they answer that is they say, well, it wasn't a star, it was a meteor. And we can interpret that literally. Well, first of all, I looked up in a lexicon the definition of aster, which is star, the Greek for star. The crosswalk lexicon I use, which is based on Young's and uh, I think Strong's, the only definition, one word, a star, or two words, one noun in its article, a star. The New American Standard uses, translates the word aster 11 times as star and in the plural 13 times. And that's the only way the New American Standard translates it, never as meteor. The King James translates the word star 24 times, 
translates aster as star 24 times, and that's the only way the KGV translates aster. And you say, well, if the literalist will then say, well, it, it means star, but he was using it in a metaphorical sense. Oh, really? I thought you were a literalist. I didn't think you could do that. You're spiritualizing the text? Are you a liberal? Got another problem for the literalist here. Oh, a mere meteor. You say star is a meteor? And a meteor is going to kill one-third of all the rivers on earth? How is a meteor going to literally kill one-third of all meters, rivers on the earth? That's not possible. A meteor is going to create a hole in the ground somewhere, but that's it. And once again, how literal is are you being when you translate star as meteor? You're not being literal at all. So there's the, the killer argument, the silver bullet against dispensationalist and futurist and literalist, hyper-literalist, who want to completely distort the meaning of the book of Revelation. Now, this star that fell into the waters in verse 11 is called Wormwood. The name of the star is called Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Well, Wormwood means bitter. It was a term used in the Law and the Prophets to warn Israel of its destruction as punishment for apostasy. And likewise, it's being used by John to talk about the destruction of apostate Israel because of their apostasy. Let's look at some scriptures, Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 20, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Jeremiah 9, 15, therefore says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. That's for punishment. Jeremiah 23:15. Therefore says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I am going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Now, Jeremiah is talking about the coming of Babylon. He's talking about Babylon. He says, wormwood is going to go through the land. Well, that's sort of jobs here in Revelation 8:11. The name of the star is called wormwood, and a third of the waters became wormwood. So even the water that the Israelites drink are going to be, is going to be bitter because of the coming Babylonians. Going back to the Old Testament uses of wormwood, Lamentations 3.15, He has filled me with bitterness. That's what wormwood means, is bitterness. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. Lamentations 3.19, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. That's, of course, is talking. Jeremiah's writing after Babylon's already destroyed Israel, and he describes it as wormwood, which is exactly the way John describes it in Revelation chapter 8, verse 11. Amos 5, 7, for those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth, cast justice into bitterness. All right, so the third star is talking about the destruction of Israel, excuse me, the destruction of Babylon. Well, actually, it's talking about the, the Babylon coming and making things bitter for Israel. Let's put it that way destruction of Israel through the use of Babylon. We go now to Revelation 8, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded, this is the fourth trumpet, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it in the night in the same way. Well, the third, third, thirds again is fitting with the scheme. The trumpets killed a third, the seals killed a fourth, the bowls killed 100% to show that progressive intensity of the judgment that's coming on Israel. This is typical decreation de rhetoric, which I've talked about many times in my previous audios, where the moon and the stars are struck and they're darkened, so lights out for the heavenly bodies, and the day would not shine. 
So this is basically lights out scriptures, which is a subset of decreation scriptures. And as we know, decreation rhetoric is used by prophets to talk about regime change, the decline and fall of empires, the fall of nations, the fall of national rulers. This has long been used, and I'm not going to give you all of the scriptures that show that. I've done that in a previous audio, actually. But I'm going to just focus on now the lights out scriptures, I call them, where the heavenly bodies don't shine anymore. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. Stars, lights out. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth. Lights out for the sun. And the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Lights out for the moon. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their integrity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So you see the lights out of the stars, the sun, and the moon is connected with judgment on haughty nations. Verse 19, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment lights out for the Babylonians just like lights out for the sun and the moon and the stars. Now I ask you, all you literalists out there, all you hyper-literalists, when Babylon was overthrown by the Persians in 539, did the moon and the stars quit shining? If you want to take this literally, a third of them would be darkened. Excuse me, let's take Isaiah, which is clearly talking about Babylon. The stars shan't give their light, really? The sun shall be darkened? There's no more sunlight? The moon shuts down? Obviously not. That didn't happen. That was meant to be taken symbolically. We go to Isaiah 24, verse 23. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Now this prophecy was against apostate Israel. Isaiah 24, 1, 22 verses earlier we read this. Behold, the Lord makes the land empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Again, I translated earth as land, as James and Foster and Brown said we should do. The land that means the land of Judah. And it refers to the desolation under Nebuchadnezzar, which occurred there in Isaiah's time. And that, of course, was a prefigurement of that which occurred under Titus in AD 70. So it's not just me saying this. This is James and Foster and Brown, who, as far as I know, are not really preterist. But it's clear what Isaiah is talking about. Lights out rhetoric. Regime change, empires going down, Isaiah 34, 4 through 5. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down. The host is the, the myriad of stars that's in the heaven. The stars shall fall down, in other words, as the leaf falls off from the vine, as a falling fig from the fig tree, etc., well, let me keep reading. Verse 5, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edom and upon the people of my curse to judgment. So there's the judgment that comes upon a nation, upon Edom. And how does Isaiah signify that? The stars fall down out of the sky. Edom actually was judged for insulting the Jews who were left behind in Israel after the Babylonian captivity. The Edomites got on their case, but then Nebuchadnezzar wiped them out as punishment. Let me ask you a question. When Edomedia was judged at that time, did the stars fall down to the ground? And if they did, why does the planet still exist if a, far literal, if a star literally falls to the ground? We go to Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8, 11 and 12. And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars therefore dark. Ooh, the stars are dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give a light. 
So the sun goes dark with a cloud. That's not so supernatural. But the moon shall not give her light. How did that happen? All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee. Lights out. And set darkness upon the land, said, says the Lord God. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon thee. By the swords of the mighty will I cause thy multitude to fall, the terrible of the nations, all of them. They shall spoil the pomp of Egypt, and all the multitude thereof shall be destroyed. So this is judgment coming on Israel from Babylon. Ezekiel is an exilic prophet talking about Babylon. Well, he says it right here. The sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon thee. So there you have the moon shall not give her light. Right at the time that Babylon's sword is coming upon you, that shows that lights out rhetoric refers to judgment of nations. And, and Egypt also was going to be judged by Babylon. God's going to judge Egypt using Babylon. And when that happened, did the stars and moon quit giving their light? It says the swords of the mighty will spoil the pomp of Egypt. The Babylonians are going to spoil Egypt. And when that happened, all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee. Did the stars really quit shining? Joel 2, verse 10 and verse 31. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So this again is judgment on apostate Israel. It comes from northern countries, according to Joel. It's either Assyria or Babylonia. They're not really sure of the immediate Old Testament reference or Joel's reference. But somewhere from the north comes the judgment. Now, when judgment came on apostate Israel, did the sun and moon go dark? I don't think so. There, By the way, there's no records of any eclipses happening during these judgment times. And this prophecy in Joel was ultimately fulfilled when Jesus came the first time at Pentecost. The remnant who returned from Jerusalem in the time of the Babylonian captivity, they typified believers who were saved under the new covenant. Let's read Acts 2, verses 20 and 21. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Peter is using Joel to quote here. He's referring to Pentecost. He's talking about people getting saved there in AD 30. And it says the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Did that happen? Literally? No, it did not. Because that is apocalyptic language referring to the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem for killing Jesus, who fortunately rose, went to heaven, and gave forth the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. By the way, a lot of times literalists will like to say, well, the moon turning into blood is not really literally that. It means we just perceive it that way when all the smoke and ash goes in front of the moon. It makes it look like it's red. Well, that's not very literal, is it? That's Literally speaking, it's the turn the moon turns into blood, literally. The same blood that flows through my veins would be found if an astronaut went and landed on the moon. That is literalism run amok. And speaking of which, let's look at this verse and interpret it literally, the last part of the verse. The day will not shine for a third of it. Now, can you imagine the sun rising in the morning and then all of a sudden for about four hours it goes dark? A third of the day and you don't see anything? In the night, in the same way, I guess the moon doesn't shine for a third of the night either. That makes no sense, literally. That's nonsense, actually. How can a day not shine for about eight hours because a third of the sun had been darkened? It says a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. I might have misstated the verse a little there. It's the day that won't shine for a third of it. It's not that the sun has a third of itself dimmed. It means the day disappears for a third of it. Either way, 
That's stupid. That can't be interpreted literally. We go now to Revelation 8.13. We'll finish up Revelation 8. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the land, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. This is an introduction to the last three trumpets. Woe, 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 those are trumpets 5, 6, and 7. We have a little interlude here. Now, notice that when John looks and he heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, the King James has an angel, and that's not correct. According to most modern translations, it really should be an eagle flying in mid-heaven. Now, prophetic warnings of Israel's destructions, destruction were often couched in terms of eagles descending upon carrion. An eagle symbolizes speed and certainty, swift and certain judgment. An eagle was Rome's most famous symbol. Rome is going to do a number on apostate Israel, the new Babylon. Now, the Greek for eagle can be translated as vulture. An eagle and a vulture from the same family. An eagle is a pretty vulture, or you can say a vulture is an ugly eagle. If you look at pictures, they do look similar, except one of them is just nasty looking, the vulture. Now, but anyway, this vulture or eagle, depending on how you want to translate it, is associated with judgment in the Old Testament. It's associated with woe, woe, woe. Hosea 8.1, set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle. Let's translate it as vulture. He shall come as a vulture against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Ah, there's judgment coming like a vulture. Habakkuk 1.8. Habakkuk 1.8. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from afar. They shall fly as the vulture that hasteth to eat. Matthew 24:28, or the eagle that hasteth to eat. Matthew 24:28. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says this, For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will, be, there will the eagles be gathered together. There's sick, dying, rotting, and decaying Israel. Its carcass is there, and the vultures are circling. And, of course, the vultures, the eagles... Or a symbol of the Roman Empire, I think. could just be the symbol of death, but I think it's cooler to say it refers to the Roman Empire. Deuteronomy 28:26. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And thy carcass shall be meat unto all the fowls of the air, and unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. Shall fray them away. That's good King James English. So your carcass is going to be like a fowl, shall be meat for all the fowls of the air. Again, the eagles are bringing judgment on a dead carcass, which Israel was about to be. Proverbs 30:17. The eye that mocks at his father and despises to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it, or the young vultures shall eat it. Jeremiah 7:33 and 34. The carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of heaven. Same idea. Might have already read that one, read a similar one. Jeremiah 16, 3 and 4, For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born in this place and concerning their mothers that bore them and concerning their fathers that begat them in this land, they shall die of grievous, of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, but they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. And their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven, the birds of heaven, which is like the eagles of heaven. 
eaten up the meat of the carcass. Jeremiah 19, 7, And I will make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hands of them that seek their lives, and their carcasses will I give to be meat for the fowls of the heaven. Meat for the birds, meat for the eagles. Jeremiah 34, 19 and 20, The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which pass between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life, and their dead bodies shall be meat unto the fowls of the heaven. Carcass is getting eaten up by the birds of the heaven, the eagles. Two more here, Ezekiel 39, 17 and 18, part A. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl, bird, and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come together yourselves on every side of my sacrifice, that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. So there's a good one. Old Testament imagery, birds of the air chomping on defeated rivals of Israel. In this case, they're going to be chomping on and sucking the blood of apostate Israel. Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, most small and great. In other words, there's going to be a mass slaughter, and the birds of the air are going to come eat the carcass of Israel. Now, I've already read this verse. But let me point out to you again that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse referred to this. He said in Matthew 24, verse 28, Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Remember, vultures, same thing as eagle. Roman eagles were gathering around the course of apostate Israel. All right. So all of that is overkill, I guess, to show that eagle is talking about judgment coming. I heard, heard an eagle flying in midheaven. And that's why that eagle saying, whoa, 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 to those who dwell in the land. Now, there's another angel flying in midheaven, which we've got to distinguish. That's in Revelation 14, 6. It's about six chapters ahead. John says this, Then I saw another angel flying high overhead, having the eternal gospel to announce to the, to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So we have judgment first with this eagle, and then we've got another eagle preaching the gospel. So the salvation of the world will come from the apostate Israel's fall. The old Israel goes down, the new Israel then rises up to spread the eternal gospel, which is universal, to all corners of the earth. All right, we need to finish up the last three woes, the last three trumpets. We'll do that in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoy this one. <laughs> 